from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. I'm joined today by my instructional design colleagues, Lucy Wolski and Megan Hamilton-Giebert, who is also the editor of this show. Lucy and Megan, welcome back to the CoLab. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here. Great to see you guys again. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about trauma-informed pedagogy, which is a holistic approach to teaching and learning that recognizes and responds proactively to the collective and individual traumas that both students and faculty experience just by living in this crazy world of ours that's full of uncertainty and change. Underpinned by the neuroscience of learning, trauma-informed teaching approaches bring heightened awareness of the crucial role of emotion in cognition, or how our emotional experiences physiologically impact our abilities to process information and form new memories, and proposes evidence-based strategies to help both students and faculty succeed in challenging times. Trauma-informed teaching practices seek to create classroom communities in which students feel safe, empowered, and connected by bringing awareness to the challenges that students and faculty are experiencing in their lives and inevitably bringing into the classroom. Trauma-informed pedagogy offers us a lens to look through, a set of tools to meet people where they are and thoughtfully promote both student and faculty well-being. In doing so, trauma-informed teaching aims to promote deeper engagement in learning and foster more equitable learning outcomes. So before we jump into the trauma-informed teaching strategies that we're going to discuss today, let's start by defining what we're talking about when we use the term trauma. Megan, what do you have for us on that? Well, I'm glad you passed me the ball here, Josh, because I'm actually very passionate about this topic because my background is in health education. And so to have an opportunity to talk about health and well-being in the classroom is incredibly valuable to me personally. Getting into the definition of trauma, one health organization, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, defines trauma as an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. The three components to narrow that down are the three E's. So there's an event happening, there is an individual's experience of that event, and then the effects of it. And it's important to Remember that the same event may happen to an individual, but they may experience it differently, either more traumatizing or less traumatizing. And then their effects may be different, either more severe or less severe. So there's a, a, a lot of potential basically within that definition in terms of where you're going to meet the students in your classroom who may be navigating traumatic experiences. The experience of trauma is really centered in the experience of the individual. It's like a subjective thing, as you said, and it's often experienced as a lack of control or lack of agency that has both conscious and unconscious manifestations. And those, those experiences impact our ability to learn, our executive functioning, and our motivation. 
And there's a lot of little definitions that stem off of this big concept of trauma, like secondary or vicarious trauma. For instance, if a student brings something really difficult they're experiencing to the classroom, a professor or, or their fellow students might experience uh, a little bit of a taste of what they're experiencing and have it kind of stick to them in a secondary or vicarious way. Also, we talk about post-traumatic stress. So the, the type of stress that we experience as kind of a fight or flight response that's constantly triggered in our body, physiologically through the brain and the nervous system, putting out cortisol and other types of chemicals that make us not able to form new memories as well as we would otherwise. Those experiences can last for different amounts of time and come up and come and come and go, depending on the, again, that experience of the individual. And uh, there's also intergenerational trauma. So there's things that come down kind of more systemically from our, our family, our ancestors, the collective story that we're all living. And, you know, even before the pandemic hit us all over the head, there was already in this country an epidemic of loneliness that was being studied at many levels, both in higher ed with students, it's the experience of, of students. And then of course, more systemic things like racial injustice, economic inequality, exploitation, all, those, all these kinds of things and economic pressures that people are facing. So I love the, the quote, we are not thinking beings that feel, we're feeling beings that think, and that our emotion, the social emotional aspect of learning, the emotion really comes first physiologically and neurologically. And just by recognizing that it could impact the way that we as educators move forward and meet our students in the classroom. I like that quote. I haven't encountered that quote before, but we're not thinking beings that feel, we are feeling beings that think. It reminds me of how anytime you're experiencing an emotion, it shows up somewhere in your body. Uh, when you feel anger, you may notice your heart rate elevating. When you feel stressed or, or worried, yeah, it may show up in your sleep cycle or lack thereof. There is nowhere that you can hide physiologically from your emotions. And I think as a society, we have experienced a collective trauma in the form of a pandemic. And in terms of trying to navigate uh, the, the upheaval and the uncertainty that has come with this collective experience that we have, all of us are processing it in different ways. And then the other aspect to think about that as well, as you said, Josh, there's, that's not the only trauma du jour around here. Uh, it's not like all the other traumas and stressful events took the week off or took the two years off for us to navigate COVID-19. There's a exacerbating effect, I think, of intersecting traumas that could be taking place. And it's, it's going to show up in your body somewhere. There, there's no getting around that. I think these definitions and sub-definitions of trauma are hitting home for me. I think that I might personally have experienced a little bit of all of them, <laughs> not only in the last two years, but maybe even in the last five or 10 years. So yeah, thank you for explaining some of those nuances of the different types of traumas. Thank you, Lucy and Megan, for sharing your thoughts on that. Megan, I, I want to bring up, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is just exactly about that, about how trauma and our experiences live in our bodies, no matter what. And just acknowledging that reality helps, helps us move toward healing. And Lucy, it's just so real. I love the way you bring your genuine self to these conversations and to work every day. And it just is, it's so resonant with all of our experiences during these challenging times. And um, it, it reminds me of a story that 
I heard from uh, Professor Maze Imad, who's one of our inspirations as we have delved into the work of trauma-informed pedagogy. She's a professor at Pima Community College, a faculty developer. So she also works just like we do with faculty, helping them be better professors, better educators. And she's also a neuroscientist. And in a video that we shared with our guilt-free book club, the workshop we can link to in the uh, podcast notes, she shares this great personal story. And personal stories are so powerful. They're, you know, the, the universality of them emerges from the specificity of our own experiences really strongly. And she shares this story about her time in graduate school. And she had been a fantastic student, always found it easy to learn, got A's, no problem. And then all of a sudden, the Iraq war happened. And she's in the United States And her family, a lot of her family is in Iraq. She lost touch with her family for weeks. Didn't know how how are they doing? Are they alive? What's going on? And all of a sudden, she became not a very good student. And she's doing the reading. Maybe you've experienced this. You're reading paragraph after paragraph. And and all of a sudden, you're like, what did I just read? I have no idea. I don't remember what I read. Later, as she's researching the the role of emotion in, in cognition and memory, she's like, oh my God, that I was going through a traumatic experience. I was experiencing what was happening in the world, personalizing it, and it was affecting me. And, and biologically, in my brain, I wasn't able to learn new things as effectively. And, and she just says that she took it personally. It was like an affront to her identity as a good student and in her self-esteem, her feelings of self-worth. And it was like, oh, my God. So when she finally realized that it was actually just this natural biological process that happens to humans when we're stressed, she was like, OK, I, you know, I'm able to let go of some of that regret, some of that self-doubt, some of that pain, that 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 injury to her self-image, uh, her self-efficacy that she was holding on to. And she shares that she was able to tell that story to her students in the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of us were experiencing things like that. And it was really difficult to get out of bed in the morning. And her students, you know, emailed her and, and talked to her after class on, you know, on Zoom and were just like, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one experiencing that. But now that you tell that story about your life and share the science behind it, it's like, now I get it. You know, it's not just me. And it's not an an indication that I'm stupid and won't be able to learn going forward. It's just what's happening right now. And here's some tools and strategies to, to deal with it. So how does that how does that sit with you both? How does that resonate with your experiences during uh, this challenging time that we've all been going through together? It's interesting. You can say this challenging time and we all know what you mean. Even though the only thing we've really mentioned is COVID-19. But like you guys said before, it's this kind of this overlap. You don't even have time to recover from one thing to the other. And it seeps in. Even when you try to compartmentalize, you try to be a waffle and have little compartments for your work and for your life and for the news. It just does not stay a waffle. I found that it turns into spaghetti. So I can definitely understand how her story is. I've experienced that too. I think a lot of us have. I think we all have. And the faculty we support as well. A very unpleasant plate of spaghetti is what we are dealing with as a society. And what resonated with me, Josh, in the story that you relayed is is how for Maze Ahmad, it it led to a bit of an identity crisis because she based so much of her identity on on high performing in the classroom. And when that was taken away, it it prompted an identity search for her, among other things. And the lesson that I can learn from that is just trying to be accepting of whatever is happening to you and whatever emotions are coming up and, and trying to work towards 
self-care and self-acceptance in acknowledging those those negative and painful feelings and, and just giving them the space to exist and realizing that you can think something and you can feel something, you can have a thought about yourself and about your identity, but that thought is not truth about you and yourself. You can let that thought come, acknowledge it, but then not let it define you permanently going forward. Those are all great points. Something we've heard from our faculty and we're hearing from faculty across the country is that recently it's just become extra challenging and it feels like students are bringing a lot of baggage into the classroom. And sometimes it feels like they're taking it out on, on us as educators. And it's really hard not to take that personally. When I was teaching, I know that was, that was a big challenge. A tool that I'd like to empower faculty with is attribution theory. So when students bring negativity into the classroom, just try stepping back for a second and asking yourself, I wonder what is motivating this? You know, what else might be going on in the life of the student? What might be affecting their responses, reactions, or behavior? To just allow yourself a little bit of space between the stimulus and the response and maybe change the narrative of what's happening. Letting go of a little of the hurt that you might feel based on what students are, how students are reacting to what you're bringing. And just cultivating a little bit of compassion for what your students are going through. Because this is just a really cool insight I learned from a mindfulness teacher that it's very difficult to feel both compassion and hurt and pain and anger and, you know, negative emotions at the same time. So if you can take a step back and feel a little bit of that, you know, oh, wow, okay, I wonder what they're going through and, and what they're bringing and what else might be true besides that they're, you know, they're a bad student or that they hate me or that whatever, you know, some of those, those alternative possibilities to what might be going on might allow you to bring some space. And, uh, and then ultimately, if you can bring that into the classroom and, and make some of what's unconscious conscious or what's invisible visible. And just to show, you know, call out that the slow burn insidious collective trauma we've all been experiencing and how you know lives our lives are more challenging these days. Maybe we can empower our students with some of these metacognitive abilities to allow for more meaningful and authentic ways of connecting and interacting in the classroom. So let's move into the action steps. This is based on an article that Maze Imad published in Inside Higher Ed called Leveraging the Neuroscience of Now. Maze Imad explores seven ways that professors can help students thrive in class in times of trauma. Six of the seven strategies are adapted from SAMHSA's framework of trauma-informed care. So what Maize Ahmad did was took the principles of trauma-informed care and reinterpreted them for classroom contexts. So it wasn't just her ideas and thoughts about what would make my classroom a, a more trauma-aware place, those are actually best practices from the mental health professional organizations. We're going to go through each of these seven action steps. Lucy, want to take the first one? Yes. The first one says, work to ensure your students' emotional, cognitive, physical, and interpersonal safety. This reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the basic need of feeling safe right above just physical needs is the need for safety. One way that we can help students 
is through sharing our own stories by being vulnerable and being honest. Just like Maze Imad shared her own experience during the Iraq war and how that impacted her ability to learn, we saw how that affected her students and allowed them to take a deep breath and let go of some of the, what they were holding on to and how that might have been negatively impacting them. So just by bringing your authenticity and your genuine experience into the classroom, you can establish those types of relationships and connections. As an instructor, that's a that's an act of bravery that that you'd be doing, and that may not be something that you're ready for. Uh, what I'd encourage you to remember is that you do not have to share anything that you don't want to share. Instead of you know sharing your vulnerability with students, uh, maybe just share your humanity with students. Definitely. And if you're looking to expand your concept of what vulnerability might mean and how it could actually be a strength for you, I highly recommend Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability. Check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Megan, want to take number two, the second action step for trauma-informed pedagogy in practice. Fostering trustworthiness and transparency through connection and communication among students. So in order to build that safety and build that trust, you need to make what the expectations are in the classroom clear and give students a reasonable idea of what they can expect to occur in the classroom. One way to foster trust is to really actively mitigate the adverse effects of uncertainty and lack of clarity by helping students find meaning and connection in your class and know what to expect, know why, what, how, exactly what's going to happen, giving them structure. So one framework for that is the TILT framework. You can listen to our episode two about transparency and learning and teaching and way to design, ways to design assignments that promote that kind of clarity and intrinsic motivation and just empower students to succeed uh, on, on the tasks that you're giving them. Lucy, what's our third action step for trauma-informed pedagogy and practice? The third step is to intentionally facilitate peer support and mutual self-help in your courses. What I like about that action step is that it reminds me that I, as a faculty, am not alone in that I'm creating a community in which we can safely and bravely engage with each other. So allowing students to know it's okay to rely on their peers as well, and that we are collectively going to support each other in this classroom. Uh, that can take some of the pressure off of you as the faculty to know that the students are going to be supporting each other. Yes, the instructor doesn't have to solve all the problems that the students are facing, but they can create a space, maybe it's a course forum, where students are encouraged to answer their peers' questions, or maybe it's a discussion board where students are encouraged, or maybe even assigned to share the resources that help them studying or grounding or reducing anxiety and stress. And those are fantastic examples of practical ways to promote a community of inquiry, which is something we talk about a lot because research shows that cultivating feelings of belonging in the classroom will help your students feel safe, connected, and learn more deeply. Megan, tell us about our fourth strategy for promoting trauma-informed pedagogy in practice. Our fourth strategy is promoting collaboration and mutuality by sharing power and decision-making with your students. And this may come as a scary idea for a faculty who's, who's very used to my way or the highway style teaching in the classroom. Uh, but I would invite you to consider that your students are, are partners in their own learning and students must learn to self-direct as part of their learning. And a way that you can facilitate that is to 
bring your students into creating some shared expectations, whether that looks like offering a choice uh, in terms of a final project, uh, whether that means letting students choose their own topics that all relate to this learning objective. Those are just some actionable ways that you can bring that in. It's about striking the balance between providing structure and flexibility within that structure. Because we know from universal design for learning that there's no one size fits all. Everybody is gonna bring their own learning needs to the classroom. So allowing students to find the learning path that works for them, those individual paths are moving toward the learning objective is gonna help people in the long run be more effective learners. And obviously our goal is to empower students to be lifelong learners, to know where to go to get information, to have the motivation to be able to make new meaning and figure things out and actually advance human knowledge at the end of the day. Lucy, tell us about our fifth strategy. The fifth strategy says to empower voice and choice by identifying and helping build on student strengths. One thing that comes to mind with this action step, there's a platform for students to give feedback on the course just for giving them voice. A lot of times there's a power hierarchy and the students might have some suggestions for improvements, but they have to wait until the end to offer that up. So I think it's related to this action step, but it's inviting them in to give feedback on the course anonymously, just so that they have a platform to have a voice in the course. By validating and normalizing our students' concerns about what's going on in the course or in their lives that relate to their performance in the course, their fears, their stresses, their anxieties, we can help empower them with new ways of seeing by discussing attribution theory, helping them let go of some limiting beliefs, reframing their experiences, and helping them see how sometimes that lack of motivation and energy might be driven by a normal physiological human response to trauma rather than an individual deficit will help them to see themselves not as failures going forward, but as just someone going through a, a, a little bit of a, a rough patch. And when they're able to metacognate on that, they might be able to say, oh, actually, what I really need is just this extension or just the ability to retake that quiz, or, or I'd really love to do an extra credit assignment that reframes the, what we, we did, but meets the learning objectives in this way, because I want to show you what I know, and I wasn't able to do so last week. Caveat on choice, not too much too soon. Sometimes choice can overwhelm if you're offering too many different options that can lead to kind of an analysis paralysis, but choice with constraint is how I heard it described. Megan, what's our sixth strategy? Our sixth one is paying attention to cultural, historical, and gender issues. What a huge undertaking to try to cram into a bullet point. But I think the way to distill that down is to recognize that your perspective is not the only one and that uh, your perspective is informed by your race, your sex, your gender, your sexuality, many other identifying factors that you may or may not share with your students. And being able to take yourself out of your own perspective and recognize that the needs of your students may vary. That's an important step in developing more inclusive practices that accommodate students from different cultural, historical, and gender backgrounds. 
And this sixth strategy for trauma-informed teaching basically encompasses all of the diversity, equity, and inclusion best practices that we know about. So of course, that could be a whole other show, but certainly you know, having that intersectional lens when we look at where students are coming from, what they're bringing to the classroom, the issues and challenges they're facing, that's really important. And just being aware of the representation that we are using in our classroom materials, making sure there's diversity of representation and voices in those materials acknowledging the ongoing inequities in our world that can be very helpful just you can't change it but this is happening and i see it and i i'm aware of it that can be you know help students feel seen and safe in the classroom and definitely responding proactively if any tensions or issues arise in your classroom both you know on one on one level and you know in in, in a full context just to make sure that everyone does feel safe because it can very easily stifle people's uh, feelings of you know they're willing to share they're willing to be open uh, if they feel you know not safe not seen not heard or hurt in some way and have you noticed that not talking about it when it seems so obvious and so big and so important, it actually creates more tension. So it really does diffuse the tension to address it and to talk about their the learner's role in their own learning and the world's role on the learner in the learner's learning. <laughs> so yes, addressing it really is a valuable tool to, to master. While you're at it, Lucy, tell us about our seventh strategy for trauma-informed teaching. The seventh strategy is to impart to your students the importance of having a sense of purpose. And I love this one because even before the pandemic and everything, we don't like to think that everything was hunky-dory before, but it wasn't. But the sense of purpose or answering the question of why we're doing this and bringing in passions, the meet the instructor page, for example, in a course, that will explain who this person is but it also explains why they're passionate about this subject. I think that's a really important way of bringing purpose into the course. And it ties back into that first strategy of sharing something about yourself. It doesn't have to be your deepest, darkest secrets, but it should be why you love biology or what is it about history that makes you come alive? How did you come to love it? Why do you think it's important in the world? If we don't do that and we're just like, the quiz is gonna be on cellular respiration, like why should anybody else care? But if we know why you care about it, that might help me come around to seeing the world in a new way, which at the end of the day is the point of learning. A wise person, I think it's Parker Palmer said, we teach who we are. We teach who we are. So really share, you know, what your purpose, what gives you meaning. Thereby, you could actively impart hope and impart positive energy onto your students just by sharing your your passions and values as, as an educator, as it relates to your discipline. Another great place to put purpose statements is in course intro videos. You answer the question why we're taking this course and in course welcome announcements. Welcome to the course. The goal of this course is dot, dot, dot. Light lifts that make a big impact in bringing purpose. We'd love to share a few more strategies with our listeners. The first one has to do with safety and that balance between structure and flexibility. So we want to have a structure. Students need structure. You can't just make every, oh, there's no due dates anymore because then people don't understand what to do and they can't prioritize anything and it's going to get slippery and lost. But if it's just so rigid, 
And it's like, no, this is due then, or you get an F and then something happened. That's not good either. So we need some sort of structure that exists. People can see it, feel held by it, but it's also responsive and compassionate. You can find that balance through dialogue with your students. Ask them what they need one-on-one. Different students are going to have different needs and need different amounts of structure to support their success in the classroom. We recently led a workshop about trauma-informed pedagogy with our colleagues from Wentworth's Center for Wellness. And they brought in a couple of great tips about the need for students to both feel seen and feel heard. Lucy, tell us a little bit more about feeling seen. Yes, this one resonates with me because my undergraduate was at Arizona State University that had a humble 100,000 students. So it was easy to feel like a number. It was easy to feel invisible. Feeling seen is a fundamental need a a student has. And there's ways of doing that and making sure that the assets that you choose in your course are representative of a lot of different types of people, making sure that you build community. Uh, You foster a place where students can introduce themselves, be authentic, and create a shared sense of purpose. Only 100,000 students. It was a small school. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Megan, tell us a little bit more about the importance of feeling heard. So feeling heard is something we all like and something we all want when we have experiences particularly when we're suffering from bad experiences, it helps to have someone let us know we're not alone and someone on the other end of that uh, validating our our fears and our hurts in that regard. And that's where empathy uh, comes into effect. And empathy is slightly different from sympathy, which is, you know, typically just a, an acknowledgement or a, you know, a Hallmark card that you send. Uh, but empathy is something that really helps you build the relationship more fully with the person who is suffering, expressing acceptance of it and a, a willingness to, to be there in the heartache of it with them. Speaking of empathy, I mentioned Brene Brown before, and she has a great two-minute video about empathy that was suggested to us actually in that workshop by one of our colleges of the Fenway colleagues. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. It just brings home the point about just how meeting people where they are, meeting your students where they are, helping them feel seen and heard helps establish an authentic relationship, which is can be deeply healing and is just deeply necessary. And just to tie it back into the learning science This is necessary, right, for learning because no one is ever going to step outside of their known way of seeing the world, what they're comfortable with, what they they already kind of their blinders. They're not going to take their blinders off. They're not going to open up to, to new possibilities of reality when they don't feel safe, when they don't feel seen, when they don't feel heard. It's just not going to happen. People are not going to change their perspectives when they feel like their current way of seeing the world is not acknowledged or respected. So you need to meet your students where they are and make them feel that way. Again, the role of emotion and cognition um, in order to allow for a learning space that allows for a breaking open and actually new thoughts and new ways of seeing, doing, and being to uh, be expressed. And I'll say empathy is very hard work and requires you to be empathetic with yourself and self-compassionate in order to find ways to, to cope with what you're agreeing to take on. And I think as a caveat, as an asterisk to add to that, I, I would say set boundaries so that you are being empathetic kind of on your own terms and in ways that are not going to bury yourself in the process and losing yourself in the process of interacting with someone who is suffering. 
Lucy and Megan, I know that you're both passionate about faculty self-care, avoiding burnout and thriving in the classroom and beyond. And you started to talk about that, Megan, in, in your reflection. So why don't you take that and, and get that ball rolling and then we'll kick it over to Lucy for her thoughts. Yeah, I got a little little ahead of myself there just because it is so important, I think, to, to acknowledge that students are not the only ones suffering. You as faculty are, are carrying your own traumas and experiences that you're trying to process. We as TLC feel that we want to help do what we can in order to support you as you are, are trying to interact with your students and support them. Faculty self-care is doing what you need to do to operate and to, to function, but it's an opportunity as well to model what that looks like to students. And there's no one-size-fits-all mode to self-care, but there's something you can do that you'll thank yourself for later, which is to establish good policies in your course from the get-go. Instead of handing out accommodation, 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 build a flexible course policy to begin with. Instead of getting asked the same question at you know 11.59 p.m. on a Tuesday, build an FAQ. It takes a little bit of front-loading of the work, but I consider it part of self-care to build a course with these support resources in it so that you can operate at your best self. That ties into a syllabus statement. I know, Megan, you talked about the importance of putting an invitational syllabus statement in there as kind of a way of establishing a trauma-informed lens from the get-go. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. The phrase I like to use in that is an instructor promise. So what I, as an instructor, can promise uh, to do in this classroom to support you. Because I received some feedback that maybe a better way to phrase that is a shared expectations uh, statement of, you know, we will support each other. You know, here's what I expect of you. Here's what you can expect from me as your instructor. And as your instructor, not only am I here to help you master these learning objectives, but I am here to support your health and wellness and well-being as a, as a person. That's great. And just to emphasize that there is no one size fits all statement that's going to work for every professor. And that that's the beauty of it, right? That you as a faculty member, you get to check in with yourself as a human being and be like, what boundaries do I need to set that are going to work for me? What's going to actually be the, the thing that I am able to offer students authentically and genuinely that is going to you know, resonate with them because it's, it's true, it's coming from me and that, that's gonna look different for everyone. So just really taking the time before the semester to check in with yourself and, and create that culture, figure out how you're gonna create that culture. And Mays Ahmad talks about the culture she likes to create in her classroom is a learning sanctuary. And I just love that phrase, a learning sanctuary. She wants to cultivate a learning sanctuary. And I just wanna unpack it a tiny bit as we wrap up. The idea of a sanctuary is something, comes from the word sacred. You know, so what, what is the sacred? The sacred is something that's different from the, the everyday, from the profane. It's something that's separate and, and held in a certain way, kind of a liminal space. We talk about liminality as a space in between in which we're transitioning and transforming. That's what learning is. Learning is transformation because we're going from one state into another of now we see the world differently. Now we have a new perspective, new vantage point. So it's necessary to have that 
kind of liminal space and you can create that through whatever introduction, whatever ritual, deep breaths, whatever it might be that's authentic to you. If you practice mindfulness, maybe you can offer that for a minute at the beginning of class. You know, I've heard from faculty who share music at the start of class, whether it's in person or on Zoom, opening up the Zoom room early or opening up the classroom early. And maybe you could even have that be a shared experience where the students, you get to have a you know Google Doc and there's a sign up and the students get to sign up and, you know, so and so is going to DJ Tuesday's class intro, um, the five minutes before class. And if if you really want to have fun with it, they, they could have a tie into the curriculum. And you know, you're teaching biology, and you find songs that have something to do with biology, whatever it might be. There's a lot of ways to make it fun and playful and inviting and personal, really, to those students in that classroom and create that space that's shared. And it's it's not you know we talk about trauma and people think like oh it's dark and heavy and. Some of it can be, but some of the teaching strategies that we want to implement are actually about bringing light into dark times or bringing positivity and, and relentless optimism, uh, kind of like Ted Lasso style into a challenging situation. And so sometimes that can be, you know, acknowledging the difficulty, but bringing some, some light and humor and playfulness in, in a variety of ways. And, and just one other kind of uh, shameless plug is that you know, we're a center for teaching and learning. We're instructional designers. We kind of function like an in-house education consulting group. Reach out to us, teach at wit.edu, and we'd be happy to coach you through this process and talk to you and help you figure out for yourself what's going to work best for you. And, you know, it's a judgment-free space. We're not assessing you, evaluating you as faculty. We're literally just here to, to help you and bring our expertise as educators and designers of learning experiences to your classroom talking about bringing the light into the dark times, I was again inspired by using this as an opportunity to self-heal, by designing the course that you wish you had, by creating the learning environment that, that you yourself would thrive in. Again, we have to keep the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, but it can really be self-healing to create the learning spaces that might help your students succeed because it might help you succeed. Let's wrap up with a piece of inspiration from Bell Hooks, who says, let's make the classroom a place that is life-sustaining and mind-expanding, a place of liberating mutuality where teacher and student together work in partnership. And I'll just share one more thing, which is from Karen Costa, 100 faculty, has a great resource we'll put in our show notes, uh, teaching checklist that you can use breaking down those strategies and actually into action steps, kind of similar to what Maze Ahmad did, but in a really discreet form. She concludes by saying, take care of yourself and take care of each other. If we had to sum up what trauma-informed teaching is all about, first, you got to take care of yourself, and then you really, really take care of each other and empower students to do the same. And hopefully you'll cultivate your own learning sanctuary. Lucy and Megan, thank you so much for coming on the collab this afternoon. It's been so great talking to you both. Absolutely. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I feel better already. Thank you, guys. Lucy Wolski, Megan Hamilton, Gebert, and I are all instructional designers at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to this podcast. And as always, stay curious.
this is really good uh, chicken soup for the ID soul. You should trademark that. <laughs> I, I owe myself five cents. That's good. I think that should be the outtake. <laughs> 